Welcome back to Black History for White People, a podcast where we educate, resource, and challenge white people about black history. I'm Brad, and on today's show are my co-hosts, Katina and Garen. Today's topic is Martin Luther King Jr. This is part one of two, so be sure and give part two a listen when you are finished with this episode. We'll begin this episode with a historical context of the day of when Martin Luther King Jr. was born. We go into a discussion on empathy. We discuss the beginnings to the middle of his life. And we end this first part discussing the differences between socialism and capitalism. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Before we jump into this, I wanted to share my thoughts on MLK, not just like my thoughts on him, but just what I know, what I've been taught from school, which is probably what most of our listeners would think. So I was told that he was basically the nice version of Malcolm X, like Martin didn't want to do anything with violence. And, you know, Malcolm, I mean, we covered Malcolm X. If you haven't listened to that episode, you should definitely go back and listen to it. He was a pastor at some point, and white people praise him now. He was something with the the bridge in uh, Alabama. He's a big voice for civil rights. But outside of that, I would say the white community, big fans. At least that's what I'm told. I'm sure that all of this is wrong, and it will change here in, a, in like half an hour. But I think that's probably what most of our listeners think or would probably relate with. They don't know too much about him, the details and specifics, but they know that he was a big player in the civil rights game. And then obviously he was killed at the Lorraine Motel. And yeah, and so now he's kind of upheld as, you know, he's got a museum and he's got all these things and his his wife is continuing to do work. And so, yeah, but let's paint the picture. What's going on, you know, around the time of his birth? And we can start to talk about the beginnings of his life. So I think, yeah, the, to start out, the, the picture that you painted is kind of accurate but incomplete. Martin Luther King, at the front end we can say, he's been kind of turned into a symbol of one of his ideals, but yet who he actually was and what he stood for at the time was actually a lot broader and more complex than the, the current like symbol that white culture kind of... I mean, really, most white people... Now, they have maybe a total of a minute of excerpts from his speeches that they just kind of repeat. And those are brilliant yeah, oratory. I, I have a dream. I have a dream. I've heard of letters from a Birmingham jail. Mm-hmm. Outside of that, I don't have yeah. anything off the top of my and, head. And those are heralded as being some of the, the best speeches in American oratory I mean, by like whoever has, makes that call. I don't know who decides that. But, <laughs> but those are brilliant speeches. But who he actually was and, and what his life was, was was actually worth digging into. And there's a lot more to him than just those speeches. So that's what we want to do is find out more who he was. He was born in 1929 in the South. That is the year the Great Depression started. So he was born kind of into a crazy time where like for five years, the economy 
completely tanked and there was massive poverty. He was in a bit of a better situation. His father was a pastor and he was actually born Michael King, but his name was uh, changed to Martin Luther King. And his father was also Michael King, so Michael King, Michael King Jr. And then his father went on a trip throughout Europe and had a bit of a, like a spiritual awakening, a spiritual kind of rebirth, as he kind of put it. So, so he changed his name to Martin Luther King. And then Martin uh, Luther King Jr., obviously, changed his name and added the junior. So yeah, so he was born in this kind of difficult time. When, when he was young, he had a, there was a white family that owned a shop across the street and he was pretty good friends with the young white boy, their, their child, and grew up in kind of just like this innocence and had this like playmate and they would play and have fun together. But when he was six years old, the family across the street basically forbade their son to play with him. And so that was like an early introduction to like the fact that the world was broken and that racism existed was, I mean, imagine that as a six-year-old, I have a five-year-old and imagining them being told that their best friend isn't allowed to play with them because of the color of their skin. Then uh, when, when King's father took him, there's a kind of scene a little later on where his, his father took him downtown to like a shoe store and the clerk told him that he couldn't be up in the front of the store, that he had to go to the back where he wouldn't be seen because they didn't want white customers to bypass the store. Did you say where this was, where he was born? Or this, this was in Atlanta. Like this scene was in Atlanta. Okay. And they moved around a little bit. But So his father said, we'll either buy shoes sitting here or we won't buy shoes at all. And he said, his father said, I don't care how long I have to live with this system, I will never accept it. So his father just kind of, you can see kind of some of those seeds being planted of this unwillingness to to just be okay with oppression. And I think his father modeled some of that to Martin from an early age and also through his father's ministry, um, which we should pause for a second and just talk about a little bit about the black church. Because Martin Luther King's father was a, a pastor. Martin Luther King Jr. was a pastor as well. And the black church, it operated in a way that was a lot bigger by necessity than the white church. In the white world in those days, we had, as white people, all kinds of institutions to serve different functions in society. So legal justice happened through the court system, and oftentimes there was you know, nonprofits that would help with like poor and caring, providing basic needs. And then there was like different activism communities and or you know organizations that would do different social causes. But in the black community, basically they weren't allowed or permitted to have justice through the court system. There was, I mean, in 1950, there was a black man sentenced to death for stealing $1.75. I mean, you, all white juries pretty much, in 99% of cases, acquitted the, the white people who had carried out lynchings. So like black people didn't have access to justice. They couldn't sue through the, the actual American court system. There was no access to justice. So a lot of those functions moved into, like the church served those purposes. So in the black community, the church was the place where uh, civil disputes would be resolved and was the place where political action would happen because they weren't allowed to vote. They couldn't have, it was the place where strikes were formed uh, when there needed to be strikes for jobs that weren't weren't paying. The, the church was like a, 
encompassing part of the black community that did a lot more than just what we think of as white people as like the purposes of church. And that was like out of necessity because of the system. Yeah, I wanted, that's really good. I, every time that we kind of talk about, and I know we did an episode on lynchings. If you haven't listened to that, I would go back to one of the early episodes. But maybe you guys can both help me, help our listeners. Like every time we bring up, you know, things that happened to black and brown people where they just, they couldn't sue. They could, I mean, there wasn't even a way for them to get justice. I have a hard time telling my brain, how does that feel? You know what I mean? Like how, I don't have anything in my life that is anywhere close to that feeling. And so is it just something that as white people and even post you know, generations of black and brown people uh, to some degree, like we just can't almost empathize with that feeling. So like, where do, what am I, what am I supposed to do with that? Obviously I feel that's wrong. I feel bad that that happened, but how do I empathize? Does that make sense? Just Mm -hmm. like, what am I supposed to do? Do I just go, oh man, that's too much. I almost in my brain just go, I can't even empathize with that. Uh, that's that stinks. Uh, let's move on. How do I get into the place where I actually like understand how bad it was? You know, like mm-hmm. I, I don't know what what to tell myself, or maybe some of our listeners. Like I don't know. It's just like a like a, we can't empathize with it. Yeah. So like, is there anything that would be helpful to help empathize to that, or is it just something that we? The first thought that comes to mind for me is that when I experience minor injustices in my life as a white person. If I'm like falsely accused of something or I had a thing recently where I got permission from my HOA for something and they lost the records and now they're like giving me a hard time. And I have this indignant, like, I am wronged, how dare you? And like, like we as white people are just so used to this idea of like, justice and fair treatment and how I can demand my rights and I have these rights and yeah it's super hard to relate to or to like fully empathize with the black community especially in the past like the the black community in our day still feels and deals with a lot of this Um, but even more so back then when there was like literally no legal recourse Nowadays, the, the court systems are still biased, but back then, they wouldn't even like begin to hear your case. And how disempowering and defeating that would be and like the dignity that that would strip, the anxiety that that would induce, like, and the fact that that set up a system where then, for a black person, if you're dealing with white people, there's an episode later where MLK was on a bus and was told to stand up because white people got onto the bus. And he if if he didn't or if he offended the white people he lived in a place and in a system where any white person could just make an accusation and there would be no legal recourse for the black person you were completely at the power of whatever the whims of the white people around you were and that was just so stripping of dignity and for the white people i think it was also so harmful because it turned white people into like these egotistic gods that the white pride in the South, as you go back and read the text, the quotes, it's so disgusting the way that that system warped 
people who were supposed to be image bearers of God into being proud and entitled. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's super sad. It's hard to relate to. It's hard to get back into the mindset of, of how, how dark it was. Well, and I would just add to that, that one, you know, I, we hear this in evangelicalism all the time, in prayers, in white churches, and in uh, all across America, break our hearts, God, for what breaks yours. And like, I feel like you can literally start with the Bible if you're a Christian, because that's where a lot of the contention is, is that white American Christianity has done the most harm to black people in America. In the name of Christ, there, has, there have been the most heinous acts. Mm-hmm. And so if you start with the Bible and what God, what, break, what breaks God's heart and how his heart is for the sojourner and how his heart is for the exile and the poor and the widow and the orphan and the systemic issues that have created those types of environments or that type of environment for people. And then, you know, look, like ask yourself, you know, if you want to know what Jesus would do, in America, ask yourself, how does this land on black people? What do black people think? Like, what do indigenous people think? What do Hispanic people think? Like, how does this land on them? And I don't think that it it comes with having to burden and um, interrogate black people about our experience because, you know, Garen, just like you are able to every time we gather, come, you know, with your facts of research, like you, you, you know, I consider you a brilliant brother, but it don't take a rocket scientist to go read some books because that's literally all you're doing, like humbly stepping into the space. And you, throughout the, this podcast and this, just this whole experience, this walk, that, this journey that we've had in such a short time, the three of us, you, you have always sought to know and not some like it's not like you you don't interrogate me but you try to see things the way I see them you often come to me and say I can't imagine this happened whatever happened and I can't imagine how this must make you feel and you listen and mm-hmm. you know step into the space and just watch learn listen hear become you know desire to become a safe, a safe space for people, my people, people like me, um, marginalized people, oppressed people, desire to be a safe space where um, you can advocate in humility with no expectation, with no white savior complex. Like step into like everything that we take for granted, like that white people take for granted actually. Think about how does this land? Everyday things, Mm -hmm. riding a bus, you know, why the green book was necessary. Like, just ask yourself those simple questions. And I think that's a great start. And again, like I said, if you're a Christian, going back to the word of what, like, if we're praying, you know, Lord, break our hearts for what breaks yours. You hear that all the time. Then what breaks his heart? Mm-hmm. Like, because injustice breaks the Lord's heart. heart. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I mean, I think just the... The degree to which, like, if you love something 
then you're going to hurt when it hurts. Yeah. And the degree to which you love it is going to be the degree to which you hurt when it hurts. If I see a stranger suffering, there's going to be some degree of pain. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to be huge. I mean, I love humanity in general. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be some pain. But if I see like my nephew or niece suffering, or if I see my own child suffering, then my suffering is going to grow with it proportionally to how much I love who's suffering. So a couple of things about that is one, if you can read these stories about suffering and you're not feeling suffering in yourself, then that shows, that's like a barometer showing like you need to grow in your love for other people. Yeah. If you're reading about, you know, Black Lives Matter protests where people are being tear gassed and like you're not feeling pain at that, then that's like, it's not a political argument to have. That's like a barometer saying like, oh, how am I not seeing like the humanity of people who are suffering? Well, and I know because, you know, this is another thing that I love about you is that you love the idea of, like, I know I'm going to, you know, mess up and I welcome the, I welcome being corrected. So in, even in your statement just now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer some loving correction. Mm. So this is the thing, like, if you love something, black people have got to stop being a thing. And I know that's not how you meant it, but that's what often happens is that white people are able to compartmentalize us as a thing Mm -hmm. and they are able to other us because they cannot identify with our experience. Um, And they make their love and their, uh, like everything around them is contextualized to their, their own personal experience that will never, never match what black people go through. And so that's the big thing. Um, And again, Mm -hmm. that's not how you meant it. But, you know, just an opportunity to say, like, if you love someone, like, you have got to see black people as living, human, breathing. Like, you want, you desire things for your children. Black people desire things for their children. Everything that you desire for your child, for your wife, for your mother, and to know that for a whole different, a whole nother people group who bleeds red, just like you do, there is a, there is a stark contrast, even, even to what happened this week, mm-hmm. you know, at the Capitol, the, the end result of what happened with the people that engaged in domestic terrorism and the stark contrast of that with, uh, versus if they would have been Black Lives Matter protesters. And just, you know, just stepping into the experience, taking the, like, not othering. Mm-hmm. Like, seeing your, see your, see your daughter in black skin. Like, like, you know, Matthew McConaughey in A Time to Kill, the, you know, the movie. Mm. Like, see, 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 what, if I was in black skin, what would that look like? Yeah. And the other extension of it, or the other direction to go with, with the thought is if, if God is the God of the Bible, if, if that God exists, which mm-hmm. I think he does, but, but either way, just enter the hypothetical regardless of what you believe about God. The Bible says that he knows everything, sees everything and loves with a love that is like unmatched. Mm-hmm. So like following that logical extreme, the degree to which you love something is the degree to which you suffer when it suffers is that God, whenever he sees the suffering of these events in history, mm-hmm. like the, all this injustice, mm-hmm. whenever he sees it, he doesn't see it from a distant place, but he in his omniscience actually is inside and sees through the eyes of the, the people who are suffering. Like their suffering is his own. Yeah. That he 
he knows their thoughts. He knows the number of hairs on their head. And so he knows the thoughts of these people. And, and that's true of today also, like immigrants. I, I read that um, there was a study that 70% of the immigrants who have come here seeking asylum, who have been deported back to El Paso, were dead or raped within the first couple months of hmm. getting back. And many of them are believers who are leaving gang violence because they don't want their children abducted into um, mm-hmm. either their daughters forced into sex slavery or their sons forced into the gang. And so they're, they're evangelicals leaving El Paso, coming up here, coyotes and uh, harassment and a lot of rape and uh, abductions along the way. And then they get to our border and are deported back to their death. Like, God shows no favoritism. Mm -hmm. The Bible says explicitly in those exact words Mm -hmm. (laughs) numerous times, he doesn't favor us over them. And he sees their suffering through their eyes with complete empathy and with a love that's like greater than any of our love for any of our children. Like our love doesn't compare to his. And so think how he suffers Mm -hmm. at the, the suffering of all this injustice. And so then how can we not try to enter into like, God, give me your perspective is equivalent to God help to open my eyes to the way that like these things cause you to suffer and are tragic. Well, and this is the key thing that I think white evangelicals specifically miss. Jesus intentionally housed himself, housed his soul in brown skin. Mm -hmm. Like that cannot be denied. Mm -hmm. Like the shade of the brown skin may have been a little bit lighter or, you know, a whole lot darker. We don't know, mm-hmm. but we know that it was it was brown. Mm-hmm. He housed himself in brown skin, and he experienced life in the world that he created. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when he could have come, he could have entered the world in at you know at the pinnacle of privilege you know within yeah. the pi- pinnacle of pr- privilege housed himself in brown skins it's brown skin the shepherds heralded him her- heralded, Born heralded in the him yeah the shepherds who were the dirtiest of the dirty that he they her- you know they declared that he you know mm-hmm. the, that they had seen the angel like yeah he t- he took every opportunity to be the lowest of the low but this is the same Savior that white evangelicals, they glorify and lift him up and they, they literally want his glory, but they completely reject his story through the eyes of people that look more like him than they do. Yeah, yeah. We've, that, that, I mean, period. Yeah. Mic drop, like period. <laughs> yeah. It says he, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant. And he, he found was in not even, likeness. yeah, yeah, go ahead, I'm and sorry. Then, yeah, no, and then, and then Paul says like that our suffering as Christians is supposed to fill up what was lacking in the suffering of Christ, meaning just like the visibility of it to the world. That the, the life of a Christian is supposed to be an imitation of Jesus's taking the low place mm-hmm. in order to show that that is the way. Mm-hmm. which kind of segues back into MLK because that's a big part of what he did is Absolutely. his style of leadership was not to take the high place and, and he was like known as being a humble man. Yep. And he he his whole philosophy of leadership came from Christianity and was uh, also influenced by Gandhi and the idea of like non-confrontational non-violence and like just this humble willingness to suffer 
in order to do what's right. Well, and he was, you know, he was a black man who could have been the best of the best of, you know, as far as like opportunity and privilege for black people. Mm -hmm. He went to college at Morehouse at 15 years old. Um, You know, he had a doctorate in systematic theology. Like he, his parent, his dad was a pastor. You know, he had a certain pedigree even, you know, within the African-American community. He could have gone a completely different route, but he, for himself, chose to be arrested mm-hmm. so too many times. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, there were many attempts on his life. There was more than just the ultimate, you know, assassination. I mean, there, Coretta tells the story about how um, she would get up early in the mornings before he would go out to do his work. And she would drive his car around before he could get out just to make sure that it wasn't bombed. Mm. His wife, mm. and she's a mama of yeah. children, driving, jumps in his car to drive and make sure that it's not bombed. Yeah. I mean, he chose the life of, and he was already a black man. Because to a white person at that time, a black man was just a black man. Mm-hmm. It didn't matter that he was an educated black. It didn't matter. He, he went well below his pedigree to identify, just like Christ did, with the lowest of the low, with the experiences of the lowest of the, the least of these. Yeah. And at one point, his house was bombed. Yeah. And before he knew if his wife and child were alive or not, mm-hmm. there was a crowd that had gathered outside that was like a crowd of black people who were sympathetic and angry at what had happened. And Martin went and like talked to them about hmm. nonviolence and about like don't take vengeance and and just like this humble response. And that's where you can see like the sincerity of a person that, that when, when it's like tested in that moment, right. that he, he was like... He wasn't real. doing it for clout. He wasn't doing it for, yeah, for fame. And he wasn't doing it for white approval because white people hated him. Yeah, and he wasn't doing it for money. <laughs> he had, people would pay donations and oftentimes they would pay the donations to him. And at one point he was actually investigated by the federal government because they thought that he was evading taxes. And he had a journal where he systematically kept a record of all the money that yep. had been given to him and how he was like allotting it and everything. And so all these contemporaneous notes that he like after the fact remembered like, oh, I have these journals. So they went and then it was like a complete accounting of all the money that he right. like when tested, it was shown to have been like to have integrity with how he was, was managing everything. And from my understanding, you know, that was a source of contention between he and Coretta because they lived very poor life mm-hmm. intentionally. Mm-hmm. And he didn't have to. Now, I'm not trying to paint him as a perfect person, mm-hmm. but those are just the facts. Those are some facts about his life that we don't talk about. And we don't make those parallels of, you know, because people still question his salvation because of, you know, because whiteness would say, you know, the, uh, whiteness in America uplifts theology to exclude you know, the black experience to ex- exclude black, uh, the black uh, worship experience, to exclude the experience of blacks as Christians. Like, you know, our, everything is, our, our theology and the way we live out our faith is, is, is highly scrutinized. Mm-hmm. And so there's still these questions of, was he saved? Well, in his actions, in, in many of the ways that he served his people and he gave his life, 
it was way more Christian than you sitting up here talking about it and being a racist. Yeah. Boom. Like, you know, but it's that he's his his life is still, you know, he was a he was a Marxist. He was a this. He was a that. Mm-hmm. But then to weaponize him against black people, Martin Luther King would be rolling in his grave. The one that y'all put him in, like, are we gonna deal with that? The the one that, and and maybe not you directly, but your your what you benefit from, you know, the racism that you still hold in your heart, like that's what killed him, mm-hmm. like. Not black people being able to exist and take up space and speak speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think a lot of people say like the the idea with like his theology and, and stuff that's in him is he like why didn't he stay in his lane and talk about just Christianity and just the gospel? And a couple of thoughts on that is first of all, just again like we said earlier, like the black church was by necessity because of white racism forced to be more than just that because it was the only institution where black people were allowed to lead. Mm-hmm. Like any other, uh, any other institution, if black people were leading, then there was going to be a white mob outside. Mm-hmm. But there was enough kind of background, white respect for Christianity that white people let black people lead churches. Yeah. And that was it. That was the only institution they could lead. And so... And they would bomb the churches if you and, were preaching something that other than what they want you to hear, yeah. want you to speak yeah. or preach. And so, so, yes, black pastors were politically engaged. And so then white, for white evangelicals then to, to take that and then use that as ammunition to say, like, you weren't focused on the gospel, it just seems like so hypocritical. Right, because I want to take all those people that would say that, and I'm like, let, let's put you in that traumatic experience of having to wonder if your car, your, your, your wife jumping in the car to drive to see if it was bombed or your house being bombed with your children in it and being like literally on the run for your life and, you know, black folks having to put you in their house because you can't stay in a hotel and hopefully don't nobody know you there until you need to know that people, you need people to know that you're there and, mm-hmm. you know, like living this underground life and but at the same time, this very public life, knowing that there's a target on your back, knowing that you're being followed by the FCIA, knowing that you're being um, wiretapped. You want to judge some man. You want to judge somebody, and all you have to do is get up, put on your drawers, go to your, go drink your coffee, go out your door, and leave your, you know, go to your job and live your life. While people who are being persecuted, you you literally want to scrutinize the lives of people who are being persecuted and oppressed and marginalized. It's laughable. Yeah, and also just the fact that, like, I think white evangelicals oftentimes want to boil Christianity down to just believing the right things. And we've kind of talked about this. Exactly. That Jesus never said that Christianity is believing the right things. Right. Like that's just something that like some like seminary somewhere (laughs) invented. That's not a real thing. Like if you read the Bible, there's more emphasis on what you do than there is on what you believe. And, and, and oftentimes in the Bible, it's structure where like the first half of biblical books, like New Testament letters and stuff, will be like a theological foundation of what to believe. And then the second half will be like all implications or applications of that in how you live. And and the Bible says directly, if if like if, if it says in James 1, that if you, uh, anyone who reads the word and doesn't do what it says is like a man who looks into a mirror, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like just kind of you that's not really an option that's like left up to us to like to to just like have 
theological foundations and not actually confront the injustice in the world that is in direct conflict with what Jesus commanded and taught. Like the the whole Great Commission is make disciples and teach them to obey everything I've commanded and taught. And included in what Jesus commanded and taught is creating a world that where there's like renewed humanity, where the world, where the fall is pushed back and where the world becomes what it was supposed to be from the beginning. And what it was supposed to be from the beginning was a place where there's equality and justice mm-hmm. and love and where power is not used to oppress, but power is used to uplift. Well, and you know what else is interesting? You were talking about seminary and, you know, that one of the big things that they accuse MLK of even now and I'm not even sure if it's true or not, was plagiarism. But I'm like, okay, why evangelicalism has plagiarized the Bible and has falsely basically used the scriptures to assault black bodies, to oppress black bodies and indigenous people, brown people. Like the Bible was used and weaponized in order to oppress. Like if you want to talk about somebody's plagiarism, let's talk about straight up line on God. Like mm-hmm. and but these are the things that or 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 the fact that he he you know sought out the like he listened to was influenced by Gandhi. If you're offended that he was a, that he was influenced by a non-Christian, maybe if America white America was being actually Christian, he could have been influenced by that. Boom. Like like don't don't at me, and don't at black people about all this bad stuff about MLK when you know. And then you want to talk about, you know, his indiscretions. I'm like, okay, why are people leaving the SBC right now? Like, because of racism? Because of 750 sexual assault cases that, you know, I mean, what, when, when is it like, what, what's the standard? Because right now it's all over the place, like ping pong. Mm-hmm. Pick, pick, pick a struggle mm-hmm. yeah. and pick a standard and yeah. stick to it or... Shut up. Yeah. The, the, the reason, so, so the, the allusion there is to the fact that, like, so the FBI started wiretapping MLK's phones because they thought that he was a communist. So MLK was not a communist. He directly denounced communists. As he said, I have never been, will never be a communist, and listed off, could tick off a list of reasons why he thought as a Baptist minister, like communism is incompatible with what I believe. He also was not just a diehard pure capitalist either. Right. Um, he believed, as I do, like, uh, I, let me set it up this way that pure capitalism, a good example of pure capitalism, is this if there's no regulation on capitalism, it's just this idea of anything you can do where you can make money you're going to do that thing and then the money you make you're going to reinvest into doing more of that thing and it just becomes this explosion of activity of that thing that you can do to make money. Mm-hmm. That's like unregulated capitalism. So TurboTax had a cool innovation where they made taxes more simple. Yeah. So they made a bunch of money and then mm-hmm. they grew and became this huge TurboTax. But then TurboTax, because in a pure capitalist system you can do this, you can use your money to then distort the rules of the game to actually start harming people and make more money from that harm. So TurboTax then took a bunch of that money and lobbied the government to keep the tax code more complicated so that people would still need TurboTax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So 
in in capitalism itself, if you don't have, if it's just like free for all, mm-hmm. then you get these situations where government uh, companies become powerful and use that money not to innovate solutions mm-hmm. that make the world a better place and monetize those solutions, but actually to like use money to create problems mm-hmm. that they can then capitalize on. And so, so pure capitalism, I think, is there, there's like obvious problems with it. So I think I like to think of it as like a spectrum of like say on one end of the spectrum there's communism. Mm-hmm. That's this idea of like extreme equality or the attempt to get to ex- extreme equality. You mm-hmm. can't actually get there. I'll explain why in a second. Mm-hmm. On the other end of the spectrum is feudalism, mm-hmm. and that's extreme inequality. Mm-hmm. So in in a feudalistic system, the power is completely concentrated in just a few hands. And so the vast majority of people in feudalism have no ability to actually realize their human potential or their image-bearing creativity. Mm-hmm. They just are working fields for the people, the overlords. In a capitalistic or a communistic system, you have the attempt to get to extreme equality, mm-hmm. but people don't willingly give up power or money, and so you need some kind of authority to force the equality, and so it becomes authoritarian. So that both of those systems, feudalism and capitalism, as the extreme ends of the spectrum, they they break down. Neither mm-hmm. one leads to flourishing. Neither one needs leads to economic equality. Neither one uh, leads to economic like growth. Mm-hmm. They both. Uh, neither one leads to the realizing of human potential. In communism, you're just kind of forced with no incentive to do work that you might not be the best at. In feudalism, you're forced with no incentive to do work you might not be the best at. So somewhere in the middle, you have. You have to have, in order to have flourishing, I think you have to have enough equality that everyone has the ability to strive towards their dreams Mm -hmm. and enough inequality that people have the incentive to pursue their dreams. So you need basically a middle class. You need people who have incentive, like I can get rich if I succeed, but I also, I need to have like enough Wealth and social safety net that I can have an education, that I can like get credit with a bank to get a loan, that I can like have basic health and care for myself, and so so that I can strive to become more. And so, like, I think a flourishing system. And my my undergrad was in economics, so like uh, this is like just coming coming from that perspective. Yeah, a flourishing system is going to be one in which there is not extreme income or wealth inequality. A flourishing system is going to be one in which there's a large middle class where people can realize their dreams, can pursue their dreams, can be rewarded for that pursuit, Mm -hmm. and where you don't have so much wealth and power concentrated into a few hands that they can misuse that wealth and power to create an unequal system or an unjust system where they're just like creating harm. Mm -hmm. And so I think whether you describe what I just described as capitalism or some people, social democracy, I think socialism is on the spectrum. Socialism would be more towards the, capital, uh, the communism side and then capitalism would be more towards the feudalism side. So where exactly you think we should fall on that spectrum? Like a lot of times people just, they don't see the spectrum, they just see the words and they just know one's good, one's bad. Mm-hmm. But I think it's more helpful to see like there's this like spectrum and like that the actual reality that we should pursue, be pursuing, regardless of what you call it, I think social democracy is a good thing to, to call it. It's like a democracy or a, a social capitalism is like the idea should be that we are trying to work together to value people, care about people, 
maximize good, provide enough social safety net that people aren't failing to realize their potential because they don't have a, a, a hope or a start. Mm-hmm. MLK fought for these things. This is what he fought for. He, he tried to implement what was in today's money a $17 an hour minimum wage. Mm-hmm. He tried to in- introduce something called universal basic income, which uh, Andrew Yang advocates for today, but it's this idea of just giving Money. I mean, it's basically the economic stimulus that we're doing, but on a regular basis. Alaska actually does that already. Mm-hmm. It's giving money to everyone in the society. The U.S. government can borrow money at like just over a, I'm no under a percent. Mm-hmm. So then they can borrow that money, give it to people, let those people use it to stimulate economic activity and improve themselves and do things. And then even if you tax them on the back end, they've created more flourishing and good stuff that like you can the government can get its money back out. So and then that system moves towards a more equal society. Yeah. Oh, it's just like the rising water lifts all boats idea. Right. Like if you if you give everyone money, it's gonna help the poor the most. And then it's gonna help them pursue their dreams and actualize their human potential. Thanks for listening to part one of two on Martin Luther King Jr. If you're just finishing up part one, make sure that you go ahead and listen to part two. If you're looking for more information on what we discuss, take a look at the show notes or go to blackhistoryforwhitepeople.com. If you'd like to play a supportive role in the podcast and be able to vote for future topics, check us out on Patreon. We are at patreon.com backslash blackhistoryforwhitepeople. We have one tier to support us. It's $5 a month. And all of the money that we get on Patreon, we always give in blocks of 10 episodes. And this next block of 10 episodes will all go to The Witness. We'll leave you with this quote from MLK Jr. himself. Those who are not looking for happiness are the most likely to find it because those who are searching forget that the surest way to be happy is to seek happiness for others.